Amen. Turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 7 as we continue in our study through this little gospel of Mark. You know, one of the things that happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first decided to do things their own way instead of doing things God's way is this problem of guilt, a guilt complex. Right away it settled in with Adam and Eve and they knew they had done something wrong and they tried to cover themselves and they hid from God and they tried to make excuses. But one thing that we have in common with them is ever since that day in Genesis chapter 3, people have felt guilty. They have felt like there's something missing. Something's not quite right. And no matter who you are, no matter what culture you live in, that's something that all humans have in common. There are several ways that people can deal with guilt. There are some people who will try to just deny the guilt. They'll just pretend like it doesn't exist and try to ignore it. It doesn't work very well. There are other people who will go to counseling for their guilt. And generally, the way that counseling works is that they tell you who to blame for what's wrong. And so you get a scale and you kind of balance out guilt and blame and you try to, if they can tell you that, yeah, your parents are really messed up and other people in your life are and society has done this, then you start to feel a little better about your guilt and then you can sort of cope. There's also a religious remedy and the, the remedy that religion generally comes up with, across the board with religions, is to try to come up with some way that you can make yourself feel better by creating a bunch of little rules and rituals. And if you follow those rules better than most people, then you grade yourself on the curve and you feel like, I've still got this nagging sense of guilt but I'm looking around at other people and they aren't nearly as good as I am. I'm not as bad as they are because look at me, I'm following rules. I'm playing the game. I'm saying the right things. And so religions make up all sorts of intricate practices from those who in some religions where they get on their hands and knees and crawl up hundreds of stairs to other people who actually punish themselves with their body or who do different things in order to try to somehow set me apart from everyone else and make me feel like I'm better than everyone else. The other alternative to guilt is the one that Jesus Christ provides when he says, I'll forgive you. I will legitimately remove the guilt from you. And Jesus came to do that, to set us free from that which Everyone throughout the history of the world since Adam and Eve had been plagued by was that guilt. Now here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has another run-in with some of the religious people, the religious leaders of the day, who had developed all sorts of intricate traditions to try to make them feel better by knowing that I'm better than other people are. Beginning with verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees... And some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of Jesus' disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. That's one thing Pharisees are always good at, is finding fault. It's what keeps them going. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? They came to criticize Jesus about his disciples. See, the one thing that religious people can't stand is when they see someone else who's been set free from the burden that they've been carrying. And so the Pharisees were really bugged at Jesus. I think what really bothered them more than anything is they watched him and couldn't find him messing up. And that was really convicting to them because they were experts and life wasn't really working for them despite all of their intricate rituals and all that they had. So they were looking for faults so that they could see Jesus as being beneath them. They were jealous of the joy and the peace and the, and the happiness that Jesus and his disciples seemed to have, the freedom that they walked in. Now, they had these washing traditions. Now, this isn't all about, you know, lavos los manos or whatever it says in the bathrooms in restaurants, you know, just washing your hands before you eat. They had a really complicated way of doing this. And it wasn't about getting the germs away. It was, it was not a, a, a question of really hygiene. It was a question of religious ritual because they believed that they had been polluted by touching people and being near people and being exposed to things. And when they were out there in the work about world, they, they just felt like, yuck, these people are so bad and I, now I need something. When I come back into my house, I need to feel like I've shut the door to all of that. And so they invented all kinds of fancy ways to wash in order to make them feel like I'm not like those guys out there. And so they would hold their hands up and water would be poured over them. They would hold them down and water would be poured over them. They would rub them together as water is poured over them. They'd dip them in one bowl and then dip them in another bowl. And there was a special way of doing it. And then all their dishes would get washed in the same way. And even the, even the couch that they would sit on while they ate would have to be spiritually mystically sort of cleansed in order for them to feel like I'm not like those evil people out there. And it, you know, it seems pretty silly to us, really, as it, as it should. But in reality, come on, let's face it, we wash our hands before we eat, but do you really think that when you put your hands for five seconds under cold water, it's really going to clean your hands? And even then you put warm water on. Warm water doesn't kill germs any more than cold water does. The truth is, most of the times we wash our hands. I don't want to creep you out, but there are still just as many germs on them after we do it. But we like the idea that we've done it. It's like, it's creepy to think about not. The truth is you have more germs around your mouth than your dog has on them, you know? And, but we feel better by, let's all just go through this ritual. Well, that's what they were doing spiritually. They thought they could insulate themselves and isolate themselves from all the bad things out there, and somehow it would make them better than other people. Jesus called them out for it. In verse 6, he answered and said to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, you actors, you phonies. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They said, you're just like those people Isaiah talked about. You talk a good game. You, you, you say the things that make it sound like, oh, you want to be a godly person. But in reality, your heart is a long ways away from where I am. You really don't want to be who I want you to be. You just want people to think that's who you are. You're a bunch of phonies. And we look at that and go, oh, that's horrible, you know, for those hypocritical Pharisees. But the truth is, how easy is it for us to say one thing and have our heart somewhere else? To sing worship songs while our head is out, you know, wondering what's going on in that football game today. I wonder if Romo started with his broken finger or, you know, he didn't? Okay. And... (laughs) You know, and it's like we're, oh, you know, here I am to worship. What is Tony Romo doing? You know, <laughs> is it Jessica Simpson's fault? You know, and our, our mind is like, you know, so far away from, from where our heart really ought to be. And it betrays a hypocrisy that we all live with often. Then, as he says, in vain they worship me. There's no point to worshiping me if your heart isn't there. And he said, you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. You take what God started out with, his law, his rule, and then by interpreting it, you make all these complicated restrictions on the way that you live that has a vague sort of connection to what God says. But in reality, you are creating your own doctrine. You're creating your own religion. You're creating your own traditions, and they really don't have anything to do with what God says. And this is what people do. We create our own religion, and then when we follow our own rules, we feel better about ourselves. And so he was calling them out for it, and he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. You'd rather have your traditions and follow your rules than to do what God says, really. For Moses said, he gives them an example. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. In the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, he goes, right? But he said, what you guys do you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Oh, you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, what he was talking about, they had a developed a legal tradition of being able to commit something to the Lord. It started out good, but what it turned into was anything that you didn't want to have to let somebody use, you would say, that's Corban. That is, that is something that's dedicated to God. And as a result, I can't let you use it. I can't, you know, sorry, that's God's. 
And he says the irony is sometimes a most basic thing, honor your father and mother, you won't do that. Like, for instance, and the idea is, you know, you have, you have your parents that have a need, and they're asking you for some help. And you go, man, I'd like to help. And they go, but you've got money. You could, you could help me. But you go, yeah, I have money, but, you know, that money is Corban. I've already dedicated it to the Lord. I have a special account that I put my money into, and it's God's. And so, sorry, that's spoken for. You can't touch it. He goes, you're dishonoring your father and mother and claiming to do it out of dedication to God? It'd be kind of like if what we did is, you know, when we get a new car and it's nice and in great shape and we say, this car is God's car. I'm going to dedicate it to God. And then somebody goes, hey, can you give me a ride? Oh, man, I'd love to, but it's God's car. And yeah, I told them I won't let anybody ride in the back seat of it. <laughs> because it's Corban. And he's going, you develop these traditions, you think you're doing something for God, and then you go, yeah, it's God's car, I'm going to give it to him after it has 100,000 miles on it, and then he can have it. But in the meantime, it's not available for anyone else. He said, you guys feel like you're right in doing that? You're coming up with spiritual reasons why you won't do the most basic things that the Bible would tell you to do. The result of your life is totally uncharacteristic with who God is. And you're calling that religious. You're feeling like you've done something good by this. And so he rightfully criticizes them for that. And then he goes on and says, you have a lot of things that you do with that. And then he had called all the multitude to himself. He said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defiles a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. They were like, what? There's nothing that goes in that can defile you? What about poison? What about? They didn't understand. So they came into a house and the disciples came to him and said, could you tell us what you were talking about? And he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, looking at someone with malicious intent, blasphemy, speaking against God, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. What's he talking about? Nothing that goes into you can defile you? He's not saying that there's no such thing as poison. But what he's saying is, look at how your body is able to process that which you take in, in terms of food. Now, when you eat food, there's an awful lot of that food that will do you no good. But your body has a way of processing it, taking the nutrients out of it, and then passing it through your system in an ingeniously designed way, whereby what's left 
is that which is useless, and what it draws out of it is good. It's amazing that your body is able to take a Big Mac and actually get nutrition from it that, that helps your body, and then what comes out is everything that's left. Really, in the case of a Big Mac, it's almost an even swap, but there's... <laughs> But it, it, it's able to extract it. It can happen. And you stay away from the stuff that comes out. It's amazing how if you eat something that makes you sick, your body is designed that you could throw it back up and it just puts it off. The body is amazing with its capacities for that. Now, here's what he's saying by analogy, using this as an example. He said, you are able to process you're designed that way. Don't blame what comes in. Don't blame what you contact as being that which defiles you. The greater problem that you have is a problem of your heart. Earlier when he said, your mouth says a good thing, but your heart's doing something else. So what does this mean? Well, again, as we deal with our guilt complex, especially if you don't understand the simplicity of confession and forgiveness, then you've got to deal with it some way. And so what we tend to do in our society is blame everything outside of us for how we are affected. You know this. Your parents always, you know, they could never bring themselves to believe that you were bad. So they always believe it was your friend's fault. You just fell in with a bad crowd. You know, they're hanging around the wrong people. I remember a, a mom one time who came to me, and her kid was one of the worst kids I knew. Well, someday I hope to meet that kid, and maybe he found the Lord. But uh, his name's Gary Trumper, by the way, if you're here today. But <laughs> she came, and she goes, you know, he's just in with the wrong crowd. And I said, Mrs. Trumper, Gary is the wrong crowd. <laughs> he, and... You know, every one of us in whatever way, you know, we have a tendency to think it's the environment that's doing this to us. And so what do we do? We set up little rules that will protect us from the environment. You know, we, and believe me, there's plenty of disgusting stuff around us in the environment. But that's not what we blame for who we are. We better find a more basic problem, and that is there's something wrong with my heart because Jesus Christ came to be able to heal our heart. And as long as we're blaming the world. Now, it is disgusting, some of the things that you see in life nowadays. And as you're just out there in the marketplace, as the Pharisees would have pointed out, you hear stuff nobody ought to hear. It's really bad stuff. And I see things that I shouldn't see. And I'm looking on the internet and, oh, there's something really gross. And, oh, I'm driving along and look at that billboard and look at the way that person is dressed and listen to what I heard from the song lyrics of that lowered car that pulled up next to me. <laughs> and I, and I want to just protect myself. But what's really the problem? Is it really that the world is really messed up? Or is it, does it bother you deep down inside that there's an attraction to that to you? I ought to be a lot more concerned about the fact that I am attracted to garbage 
then I should be about the fact that garbage exists. Garbage exists. It does. This is a fallen world, and that's the way it is. And there are bad people out there and bad things out there, but do I take responsibility to process it? You know, that's like these people that go sue McDonald's because they're so fat from eating at McDonald's so much. You know, are they advertising any, themselves to be anything but bad for you? You know, they're not claiming, they're not showing Jack LaLanne doing jumping jacks with a Big Mac in his mouth. You know it's bad for you. It shouldn't bother you that, that they can make a hamburger with that many calories or that much fat. What should bother you is, why do you want it? Now, the Big Macs, I'm pretty much over, unless I'm really hungry, but I can't figure out why I like Jack in the Box tacos. Because there isn't anything in those things that could possibly be good for you. The meat doesn't resemble any meat that exists in the world. And the lettuce is like confetti. And the, the shell is dripping, sickening. Just, it, it, and then just a little half a slice of American cheese stuck in it. And it's like, it's disgusting. They should never be able to sell those jack-in-the-box tacos. But they're two for a buck. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, I don't just eat them because they're cheap. I like them. <laughs> and that should concern me. More than the fact that why is Ralston Purina, who I think owns jack-in-the-box, making these awful tacos? <laughs> What should bother me is that I like them. And that's the same with the rest of the world. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Don't pick at Jack in the Box. Figure out why it is. Nobody's forcing you to eat the stuff. Why are you doing this? As far as that goes, don't blame the heathens for all the garbage they put on the Internet. Why don't you get a little more personal and ask yourself why you take a second look, why you Google for the stuff, why you are drawn to it. Because the real problem is not what goes in. The real problem is in here in your heart. And if you don't deal with that problem, then all of the judging of others and all of the pointing fingers and all of the self-righteous prudishness is not going to cut it. You know, a few years back when there was an evangelist that had an embarrassing moral failure, and another evangelist stood up and just boldly proclaimed that that other evangelist is a cancer on the body of Christ. Now, was he a cancer on the body of Christ? I don't know. What he did was pretty disgusting. But it's amazing that one guy feels like it's his job to point out cancer in the body of Christ. Because in this case, the pastor who declared that so boldly within weeks was arrested at a motel with a prostitute himself. And then he came on TV, and he did the right thing. He repented. He was crying and weeping and going, I have sinned, and please forgive. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I love that. And he got busted with another prostitute a few weeks later. And you go, at what point are we going to stop blaming prostitutes and pornography and all those evil people out there? And are we going to realize my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things? Who can know it? And what I need is for my heart to be touched. 
I don't need everyone else to, to coddle me and to protect me. Hey, I ought to be able to process whatever I come in contact with if my heart is right before God and it shouldn't affect me. If you doubt that, look at Jesus. He hung out with sinners all the time. He, he was with people who were a horrible influence. But did they influence him or did he influence them? See, ultimately, he was so close to sin that he took all the sins of everyone in this world and took them upon himself, and it didn't defile him one bit because he processed it. He died for it. He paid for it. He forgave that sin. And he is the example for us that he has designed us with the potential to be in contact with evil and not to be corrupted by it. And that really what we need to do is stop blaming everybody else for the way we are. What we really need to do is look in our spiritual mirror and say, what is wrong with me and how is God going to fix this? What is he going to do? My heart is the problem. And you know, I can't spend a bunch of time judging other people's hearts. I just can't. Because it's a full-time job for me to deal with my own before God to go to him regularly, daily, consistently, and go, like Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way, in a permanent way. You know, it's what I need is for God to touch my heart. And I'm gonna, I don't want to blame other people and I don't want to blame the world or my parents or whatever, my teachers. or No, you can't do that. As soon as you start blaming others, you've dodged responsibility yourself. But here's the problem. If you're messed up because your parents mistreated you or your teachers mistreated you or your friends were bad influences or that awful internet or that terrible TV or those movies that you saw or the, you know, the way this world is or the economy. The way, if any of those things are the reason you are the way you are, then there's no hope for you because you can't control any of that. But you can certainly process it and pass it. And that's what Jesus is saying. No, there's a way to deal with this. But it starts with taking responsibility for your own heart. And that's what the Pharisees weren't prepared to do. And that's what Jesus Christ came to help us do. And that's his message. Whenever our Christianity doesn't look like Jesus, when we start making the good news sound like it's bad news, hey, I have something to share with you. You know, God hates what you're doing. You make him sick. Good news. <laughs> Something's wrong. As he was, when he was talking about the, the Sabbath earlier, he said, look, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Anytime you've got the rules that are, that are turning you into something that's not like Jesus, you've got it turned around. And we're foolish indeed if we don't recognize each of us, our tendency to so easily turn this thing around and make it not about me taking responsibility for my heart before God, but instead grading on the curve, looking at other people, and going, I'm better than most of you. 
You know, it doesn't help me one bit. If I get up here and I look at all of you and I go, you know, I think I'm probably better than most of you. I mean, I don't do some of the things that you guys do because I'd lose my job if I did. And, you know, I read my Bible more than most of you because I got to preach it. And if I'm the most holy person in this room, and I'm not, but if I was, what does that mean? Because I know my own heart. And the truth is, I know how far short I fall. J. Vernon McGee, one time, speaking to a crowd of people, said, said, friends, if you knew my heart, you'd never listen to me preach. And he said, but if I knew your hearts, I wouldn't waste my time talking to you either. (laughs) And that's the truth. We all have a heart problem. And my problem is my heart, not yours. Your problem is your heart. Stop blaming other people and don't play religious games. Don't be a phony so that you can feel good because you're more righteous than somebody else. Our righteousness is like filthy rags as far as God is concerned compared to his standard for righteousness. Yeah, we're all messed up, but he has the answer. He wants to touch us, but it begins by us recognizing our heart problem. And when we can't recognize our heart problem, when we're phony and we won't be honest about who we really are, there's no hope. All that's left is we judge others, we blame others, we play games, we go through our little rituals and and we say it, talk a good game, but our heart is way off from where God wants it to be. And that's what a guy like Jesus confronts you on. And this is why they killed him. Because he calls everyone to individual responsibility. And we don't like hearing that. We're much more comfortable playing games. But Jesus didn't come to play games. He came to offer an opportunity for us to be healed of what's destroying us. And that is our own hearts. You know, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You guys have a lot of good rules, and that's great. But he said, and it's true, adultery is a horrible thing. But he said, do you understand that if you just look after someone and lust after them, you are deeply connected with the adulterous gene? You have that potential within you? Why do you think you're better than a person who does something that you want to do? And he said, you know, oh, murder is bad, and it is bad, but he goes... If you look at someone with hatred, if you say things to them that are, that are hateful, don't you understand? It's the same problem. We all have the same heart condition. And it's, and it's what he came to change and to heal. Now, as we look on in the passage really quickly, the next section, there's a, a Greek woman, a Syrophoenician woman, not a Jew, not religious, But her daughter was possessed by a demon. We don't know how she got possessed. Maybe the mom herself was involved in occultic activity. But this lady, all she knew was Jesus could help. And so she came to Jesus as he was eating at the table. And and she asked him, you know, kept asking him, was persistent. Please cast the demon out of my daughter. Verse 27, Jesus said something that seemed really rude. He said, let the children be filled first, 
For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He goes, you know what? I'm eating here with a bunch of Jews right now. I'm doing stuff for them. And you're a little puppy dog. I'm not going to feed you right now. Now, for me, that would have been really offensive. It's racist. It's cruel. It's insensitive. He's prejudiced. How, how could you say such a thing? But this lady was something. She came back and answered, Yes, Lord. Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. She goes, I don't really understand what the bread is all about, but you mentioned that dogs don't get fed off the table, but hey, throw me a bone here. Throw me some crumbs. I'll go with what you're saying, and I'm still asking you to do something about it. And Jesus said, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. What's that about? You look at that story. Well, Jesus did something. He knew her heart, but he wanted other people to see her heart. So many times people say they want something and they express themselves in in one way, but if they don't get the response that they want right away, they show their true heart. You know, you ever have somebody who, uh, you know, maybe your spouse says something to you like, I really love you, and you don't say it right back because you're trying to program the TiVo so that you can watch the fight later. And, and they're like, now they're mad at you. It's like you've done the worst thing. And, you know, it's like, I love you. That's it, you know. And it's like you show how loving you really are. Really what you want is you want somebody else to tell you that they love you. And so you say what's going to bring about a desired response. That isn't love. It's like asking someone how they like the way you're dressed. And then they tell you, and now you hate them because they were honest with you. We play games. It's this hypocrisy, the same thing that Jesus was talking about. But this gal, she knew that she needed help. She was desperate. And so she was willing to take what would be considered an insult to most anyone and She was willing to go with it because she was saying, I'm really desperate. And it showed her heart. She wasn't somebody who was looking to be coddled. She wasn't somebody who was trying to manipulate. She saw him, even though she knew nothing about Judaism, Jesus being the Messiah and all that, she was someone in her culture that would have been unheard of. But she was somebody who was willing to make him the Lord. She was somebody who said, hey, I'm going with your approach because you're all I got here. You're my only hope. This was someone desperate, and Jesus was so impressed by what she said that he delivered her daughter, and she was healed. And again, what a contrast. Deeply religious leaders, a Greek Syrophoenician woman who wasn't into religion at all, She just wanted help for her daughter. On the one hand, a bunch of phonies playing a game. On the other hand, a lady who was desperate. Then at the end of the chapter, there was a guy who couldn't hear and couldn't speak. He couldn't listen to Jesus' sermons because he couldn't hear them. And he couldn't tell them how great they are because 
didn't hear him and he can't talk. But he wanted help and Jesus touched him and healed him. But he knew the guy's heart. He could see what no one else can see. And God sees our hearts. Even if we don't know the language and we don't know quite how to express it, he sees our hearts and that's what he's interested in. That's what he died to save was the essence of who we are deep down inside. You can't judge a book by its cover. Sometimes there are people that just don't seem like they're close to God at all and yet They're right there just about to let him have control of their life. And there are some deeply religious people that never really get it, that never really submit to him as their Lord. They're only using him as a good luck charm, using him as a way for them to feel better about themselves. But it's all a matter of the heart. That's what matters. And your heart is your problem, and my heart is my problem, but Jesus Christ offers a solution for each of us. A new heart. That was what God had told Jeremiah and prophesied, that under this new covenant, I'll give you a new heart. And that's what we need, a heart transplant. We need his heart for ours. We need him to do that healing work within us that when we look at our heart and we realize it's corrupt and we know our own capacity for for wrong, we know our thinking is mixed up, but we can come to him and say, search me, know my heart. If there's a wicked way in me, clean it out and lead me in the everlasting way. I'm through blaming others. I'm through being paranoid about the world corrupting me. The world doesn't have to corrupt me. I'm already corrupt. The damage has already been done. And now, God, I want you to do something about it. I'm sick of playing games. I'm sick of religion. I want you to do a legitimate work of forgiveness in my life and start over with me. And... That's the heart that Jesus was looking for. That's what we're shooting for. An awareness of the reality of that pollution has invaded our heart, and it's nobody else's fault, but there's someone who loves us, who sent his son to die for us, who can do something about it. And when we stop looking out and we begin to look in and ask God to work in our lives and in our hearts at our very essence, then we are right there, ready for God to do a real work of his spirit in our lives. And that's what Jesus came to provide. In the process, he rattled and shook up a lot of people because this is not normal. This is not what happens with most people in every religion that there is except Christianity. This is a supernatural work of God by his son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, as he makes over our hearts into something new. Our responsibility is to recognize what the problem is and to open our hearts to him daily. His mercies are new every morning. Let him do the work. Get our eyes off what's outside that can't defile us, but realize I see what's coming out of me and I don't like it. And I want change. I want you to do a work, God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reality of your word. 
for the promises that you make to give us a new heart. When we recognize that nobody else is the problem, I am. Thank you for calling us out for our phoniness. Help us, Lord, to receive from you that true forgiveness, that true cleansing that will transform our hearts and our lives. We're sorry for the smoke and mirrors, that game that we play, where we pretend that we're okay and everyone else isn't. Lord, you tell us to confess our sins and we admit we are sinners. We fail constantly. We have the potential for every gross thing that there is in this world. But Lord, help us to process all of that and to pass it and to live in purity of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.